So today marks 18 months of Jackie and I being parents to little Riley Grace. And when it comes to, when it comes to Riley Grace, we, we enjoy learning all of her little ways, right? Her, her sounds, her habits. Riley Grace, the way she rubs her eyes to manipulate us, really just me, into picking her up. Her confusion of words. She gets stuck, help, and up, confused. So if Jackie's sitting eating dinner, she'll, she'll crawl, walk over, and then one of those three words comes out, stuck, help, or up. And so we're trying to help her get her words uh, right. And so it's 18 months of, of learning her. We're, we're learning how sweet she is. We're learning how conniving she is. We're learning how smart and social she is. We know that she loves to laugh, but most of all, I think the thing I adore most is how hard she tries to get what she wants, even at 18 months old. I think the cutest one, she doesn't realize that she gives herself away, but I'm always guilty of leaving the, uh, the gate closed at the bottom of the stairs, and so she'll be in the living room, and when she spots the gate open, this time she gets the word right. She always says, up, as soon as she sees the gate open. And so if she's in the living room and we hear the word up, we know the gate's open and we gotta get over there before she does or else she's gonna try and climb the stairs. Even at 18 months, it's so clear with Riley Grace that she tries to get what she wants. And it's this trying to get what she wants that I wanna use to start my message this morning because the end of John chapter two sets up every encounter that Jesus is about to have from John three on. I wanna make sure you hear me on this. John two, 23 to 25, it sets up a lens with which we can view every encounter that Jesus is about to have. And so John 2, 23 to 25 says this, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And so again, this is the lens through which we come to understand this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is trying to get what he wants, but Jesus knows what's in man because Jesus is fully God and fully man. So we're, today's passage is John 3, 1 through 21, but we're gonna start with just 1 through 15 first. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So first, let's zoom out all the way, just to capture the theme of John's gospel. And that is that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Son of God, who by believing in him, people can have eternal life. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? It's going to tell us that Jesus has come to expand the scope of salvation as currently understood, which makes it hard to see as mere coincidence that his first encounter is with Nicodemus, a teacher, a rabbi to Israel. Now, can't help but notice that the encounter starts with Nicodemus coming at night. He comes under the cover of night to meet with Jesus. Why? He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He has a reputation he wants to uphold with the people who respect him, and he knows if they see him mingling with Jesus in the daytime, his reputation might come under question. And so he comes under the cover of night to meet with Jesus, and uh, it's a good thing Pastor Stephen's not here because I'm going to cheat a little bit, okay? Um, but in John 4, we see this encounter with the woman at the well. And the woman at the well, it takes place in the middle of the day because she's trying to avoid everyone. And remember that John 2:25 is a lens for us to look at all the encounters that Jesus has one-on-one with people from John 3 on. And so in John 3 and John 4, we see two very different approaches to Jesus, but here's the most incredible thing. We see that Jesus is the same to both people. And in this encounter, this reputation that he wants to uphold, he comes under the cover of night because he didn't want to be judged by others for seeking out Jesus. And then he starts with rabbi, which is a respectable greeting. But when we look at who it is that's, treating, that's greeting Jesus this way, Nicodemus is actually trying to establish grounds that him and Jesus are colleagues. I'm a teacher. You're a teacher. We, we're on the same ground here, Jesus. Um, how many of you know that's wrong? <laughs> right? Ain't no one sharing common ground with Jesus, right? Nicodemus is trying to establish, like, we're colleagues. There's, there's some common ground between us because he has some questions that he wants answered, but what follows reveals that Nicodemus has a limited perception of Jesus, and not only does he have a limited perception of Jesus, we see why his perception is limited, You might remember from the rich young ruler, we talked about this, that he addressed Jesus as rabbi as well, but the reality is, is that Jesus is much more than just a good teacher. He is the savior. And so Nicodemus starts off with a limited perception, but it's not just because he says rabbi. In fact, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word who existed at the beginning, who was with God, who was God. But how is it that Nicodemus sees him? 
You are a teacher who has God with him. Technically, is he correct? Technically, right? Because John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. Jesus was with God. So technically, there's an aspect here where Nicodemus is correct, but it's only a partial truth. And how many of you know a partial truth doesn't compare to the full truth? And so here's Nicodemus trying to have an encounter with Jesus on a partial truth of Jesus and not the full truth of who Jesus is. It's an incomplete understanding of Jesus, and this incomplete understanding is why Nicodemus is missing out. But we also see a further why in that Nicodemus says, I know that you're a teacher who God is with because the signs that you are doing. He has seen something that Jesus has done, but Nicodemus does not have a personal revelation of who Jesus is. And so he's saying, I see what you've done, and because of what you've done, I have deduced that God is with you. Guess what? That's not enough. Nicodemus, it doesn't matter that you're a rabbi. That, in and of itself, is not enough to save you. He might know something, but he doesn't believe it. He knows something, he's seen something, but there is no belief there. And so Jesus' answer, it's a firm rebuke to Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there's a massive degree of irony here. I actually love it. I love what Jesus did here. Because Nicodemus has just said, I have deduced that God is with Jesus from the signs that I have seen, (laughs) and Jesus, who's going to be the one to usher in the kingdom, the one we call King of Kings and Lord of Lords, says that without being born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Right? Like in 2023, I can hear someone being like, wow, Jesus, like you're gaslighting me right now. Right? Like, I just said I saw the signs, and Jesus goes, yeah, you saw the signs, and yet, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom. So are you guys catching the play on words here, right? I've seen the signs, and Jesus goes, great. You still haven't seen the kingdom. Why? Because Nicodemus has a knowledge with no belief, right? If you've grown up in church, you've heard this cliche. And if you haven't, welcome. You're about to hear it for the first time in a long time, okay? It says that people miss heaven by 12 inches, Because they know something up here, but they don't believe it in here. And that's what Jesus is trying to establish with Nicodemus. You think you know something, but the lack of belief is why you're going to miss out. There's going to be a lot of people who sat in church their whole life because they thought they knew Jesus. But when they see him, they're going to realize they never actually believed in him. There's a difference between knowing and belief, and that's what we're going to see unpacked here. You can't see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, without being born again. And Jesus didn't just say this to any Jew. He said it to a rabbi. He said it to the one who's supposed to teach all of the other Jews. You're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, whether Nicodemus's ego got pricked or he got annoyed, we don't know. But his response It was one of scorn to what Jesus had just suggested. 
He's not stupefied and naively asking how one could be possibly born again. Okay, I've heard that take. I don't agree with that take. Nicodemus was a smart guy. He wasn't looking at Jesus going, I'm supposed to get back in the womb and be born? How is that supposed? No, he's a smart guy. In fact, what he's doing, he's using physical birth as an illustration for how ridiculous he considers what Jesus is proposing. But Jesus being Jesus, (laughs) he hears the scorn and he doubles down on Nicodemus now. Now, how many of you have ever asked someone like a tough question directly? Like maybe you're seeking feedback and you're like, listen, like I know this is a tough subject, but like I really need to know dot, dot, dot. And then the person, before they respond, I always love when this happens. They go, honestly? And I'm like, when I ask you a question, yes. (laughs) I am looking for your honest response, right? So like when you say honestly, it's like, I was kind of hoping you would do that. Like, it's, it's not a necessary word. I am looking for a truthful response from you. I don't want anything other than the full truth. But secondly, it's a way of saying, okay, I'm going to give it to you straight. And Jesus does this with Nicodemus. He doesn't say honestly. Instead, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. It's now the second time that Jesus uses this phrase to make a point to Nicodemus. And it's radical when you consider that John 1, 14 and 17 tell us that Jesus is both full of grace and truth and he is grace and truth. So Jesus is emphasizing the totality of the truth that he's sharing with Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's notice how Jesus has doubled down. He is stating an obvious, logical extension of his previous statement. Because his first statement was, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. But now he's saying, if you aren't born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Which logically makes sense, right? If you can't see it, you can't enter it. But then we get to this middle phrase. Unless one is born of water and spirit. Essentially, Jesus is saying, be born again, again, but he phrases it, unless one is born of water and spirit. Jesus, the logos, the word, he's referencing scripture from Ezekiel here. Before I get to Ezekiel, let me just say this. It is an incorrect take on this passage to think that water has anything to do with baptism here. Because if it had to do with baptism, that would mean if you weren't baptized, are you with me? Now, don't call Pastor Stephen just yet. I'm telling you that you should be baptized as a follower of Jesus. All I'm saying is it's incorrect to say that unless one is born of water and spirit refers to baptism, because then it would mean that Jesus alone isn't enough, that you need baptism as well to get to heaven. And when you look at the thief on the cross who's dying and Jesus turns and says, today you will be with me in paradise, I've got news for you. That guy wasn't able to get off the cross and get baptized so he could then be in paradise. Are you with me now? You realize I'm not a heretic, right? 
okay? So unless one is born of water and spirit, does not have anything to do with baptism. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 is where we come to an understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And so in Ezekiel, God is addressing the nation of Israel, meaning this is probably something that a teacher of Israel would know. And he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus the word is referencing an earlier word that a teacher of Israel should know so that he would understand what he means by born of water and spirit. But not only that, what I love about Ezekiel is guess what happens in the very next chapter? It's the valley of dry bones. The valley of dry bones that the prophet goes out to and raises these dry bones to life. It's a picture of what God is doing to us in our sin. That in our sin, we are dead. But in Jesus, these dry bones, they come to life because God calls us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Death turned to life by the power of of God. This picture of salvation, of being born again, is consistent throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New. And here in John 3, we are really getting to obviously the most famous explanation of salvation, but the tone is also being set for being born again. Verse 6 begins to unveil this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If we need to be born again to see and enter the kingdom, then logically it implies there's something wrong about the first birth. It's where we come to see how powerfully sin corrupted things back in the garden. A place with one law, with death as the consequence, and Adam and Eve got it wrong. They died a spiritual death that destroyed their relationship with God. And as a result, everyone born from that point on inherited this sinful nature, nature, which means everyone is born this way. But while everyone is born this way, what Jesus has come to say to Nicodemus is everyone has an opportunity to be born again. And that's where this encounter goes from merely educational to mind-blowing. And it's why it's perfect that this encounter takes place with Nicodemus, a rabbi. Because Nicodemus hears this doubling down from Jesus, and his reaction is, how can these things be? Nicodemus' current understanding is being challenged, and Jesus, grace and truth, calls him out on this. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Like, guys, that's a rebuke, (laughs) right? That's like, you think you know so much, you, the teacher, the rabbi, and yet you don't grasp this concept that I'm talking about? Jesus calling him out like that, it's a massive blow to the misperception that Nicodemus had in the beginning. Remember, Nicodemus called him rabbi, why? He wanted to establish, hey, Jesus, we're, we're work pals, right? We're both teachers, we got some common ground between us, and Jesus now goes, are you a teacher of Israel? Like, you called me rabbi like we're work buddies, and yet you can't handle this. Uh, We do not share common ground. 
Remember the rich young ruler? He tried to share common ground with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'm good too. And Jesus goes, oh yeah? If you're perfect, then go do this. And what happens with the rich young ruler? He doesn't do it. Why? Because he's not perfect. But God is perfect and God is good. And God with Nicodemus here, Jesus with Nicodemus here is saying, um, the ground that you're trying to establish that we share doesn't exist. And so he calls Nicodemus out. I'm stating basic facts, and yet you, Nicodemus, a teacher, can't handle it. Now, if Nicodemus hasn't been paying attention for the third time, Jesus drops, truly, truly, I tell you. Jesus reiterates that what he's been sharing is basic, but then he says something to see if Nicodemus can catch a revelation. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, not know, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then look at what happens in the next verse. Jesus drops an admission, a confession, a revelation to see if Nicodemus can grasp it. This is what he says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. I'm not at that quote yet, so you could just go back to the scripture. But did you catch it? He who descended from heaven. Not will descend, he who descended from heaven. What does that mean? It's happened. It's subtle, but it's undeniably there. There may be, in addressing Nicodemus, basically what he's saying, there's some people that you believe have ascended into heaven, but Jesus is saying there's only been one to descend. He is saying something without saying it. Do you see it? He is challenging Nicodemus's perception, but Nicodemus's ego is getting in the way. Why? Because Jesus said, are you? Are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't, you don't get this, right? So Nicodemus hears this, and what happens? He gets offended. Come on, how many of us have messed up because our pride got in the way? Don't raise your hand, it's okay, Right? It's happened. It happens to all of us. If our ego gets worked up, our ego gets in the way. And so Jesus asks this, cha- this question to challenge Nicodemus, and then he makes this kind of like subtle admission. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is not being rude or condescending here. He's being very direct, but it's all being done so that Nicodemus might have a chance to perceive that Jesus is not a teacher whom God is with, but that he is God, has been from the beginning, and he is one with God. So now... Jesus looks back to something Nicodemus would know. He wants to give Nicodemus a familiarity with the gospel truth he's about to share. Jesus wants Nicodemus to grasp it for himself, to have his own personal revelation of who Jesus is, because that personal revelation would be transformational for Nicodemus. Jesus is claiming that this new birth, it's built on the Old Testament that Nicodemus should know. Jesus is trying to show that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus because he wants Nicodemus to perceive clearly who he is. 
One of the commentaries I used to prepare this message, it says this, the Old Testament prophets had promised a cleansing and renewing. As such, they tended to focus on corporate results, the restoration of the nation. However, there was also anticipation of a transformation of individual hearts, no longer hearts of stone, but hearts that hunger to do God's will. Apparently, Nicodemus had not thought of these Old Testament passages in that way. If he was like some other Pharisees, pay attention church, he was too confident of the equality of his own obedience to think he needed much repentance, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed to be born again. So Jesus asked the question, if I tell you earthly things and you don't understand, how how can I even begin to tell you heavenly things? But then Jesus begins to tell him heavenly things because this is what he says in the next verse. Now remember, he's trying to provide some familiarity for Nicodemus, right? Hey, Nicodemus, I'm gonna talk about something that you would know to try and help you understand what's coming because of me. And so in verse 14, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. What did Jesus do? He looked back to something in Israel's history to say from this, something that a teacher of Israel would know, I'm gonna point you to what's to come, which is that the son of man must be lifted up. When Israel needed deliverance, God provided relief by having a serpent lifted, and all who turned their eyes to that serpent were delivered. Likewise, Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross, and those who remember this, who look to Jesus and what he did on the cross, they will be saved. And so this is a historical moment for Israel that any teacher would certainly know, and Christ uses that to remind Nicodemus of the fact that God has been faithful in delivering his people in the past, and he's not about to stop now. But then he drops a bomb on Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's what's happened here. We're all born of flesh. We're all born with this sin nature. There is no escaping it. All must be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. But the good news is this, anyone can be born again. As we turn from analyzing this encounter to looking at verses 16 through 21, here's a reality I wanna make sure rings clear today. That, and here's the quote, you can put it on the screen now. This is from one of the commentaries. What must be seized from Jesus' insistence on the new birth as the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom is the fact that this truth is applied to a man of the caliber of Nicodemus. If Nicodemus, with his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? No amens, really? Because if Nicodemus is not good enough of his own merit to make it, I'm pretty sure I'm not. But thankfully, on whose merit do we make it? We make it on Jesus's and Jesus alone, which means this, you could be the worst of the worst sitting in this room today, but if you claim the name of Jesus this morning, you are saved. 
Listen, for the holy rollers who might be sitting in church this morning, knowing of Jesus and yet not believing in him, the worst of the worst of sinners can come this morning and believe Jesus and have an actual relationship with him more than the person who claims to simply know Jesus. If Nicodemus, the esteemed rabbi teacher of the law to Israel, is being told he must be born again, then the same is true for you and me. But that isn't to make us feel small or insignificant. It's to help us realize only Jesus' work saves us. There is nothing you can do on your own that saves you. And so I know I've shared this before, but in in talking about being born again, I want to share it again simply because it fits. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, we are delivered from death to life. And in these next verses, right, this famous passage of John 3, 16 through 21, we're going to see that. But when I think about being born again, I can't help but think of Riley Grace because She was breached the entire pregnancy. And there was only one way that Riley Grace could be delivered that she might live, and that was through C-section. And and so for Riley to live, she had to be delivered that way. And of course, if you don't know what breach means, it means her head was in the wrong direction. And the reality for us is this, all of us are born spiritually breached. We are born headed in the wrong direction. But through Jesus, we are born again, and we receive this gift of eternal life. Because of Jesus, we can be born again, and when we're born again, he fixes our incorrect orientation. No longer are we born headed towards death, but towards eternal life with him, because we have a new birth, a birth of water and spirit that helps us to see and enter the kingdom of God. John three sixteen through 21, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, just in case you're not aware, starting in verse 16, the Apostle John is now preaching to those who are reading this letter. Because think about it. It'd be slightly awkward if Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, for God so loved the world (laughs) that he gave his only son, right? Like, it'd be a little bit awkward. So what happens here is John has given us a story, and now he's preaching the gospel to us. The encounter has ended in verse 15, and now we we are reading the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, and that's what that word for is for in verse 16. It connects what just occurred with what the Apostle John is now sharing with us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Is there an amen in the house? And so here's the beauty of Jesus, the good news, and the salvation that's available to all of us this morning. God so loved the world. That little word makes a difference. Then just say God loved the world. God 
so loved the world. What is that an indication of? It's an indication of just how great his love is for us. God so loved the world. We're not talking about the planet, right? We're not talking about planet Earth. The world is referring to people, right? It's like when we talk about the church, are we talking about our building? No, we are the church. God so loved the world. What did John the Baptist say in John 1.29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sin of Israel. Not the sin of the Jews. The sin of the... That whoever believes in him. Whoever. That means anyone and everyone has the opportunity to choose Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let me focus on that word might for a second because that word is not a reflection of whether Jesus can or not. It's a reflection of whether we choose Jesus. Those who, G- who choose Jesus, they're saved. Those who don't choose Jesus, they are not saved. But that word might is a reflection of our choice. If everyone on earth chooses Jesus, guess what? Everyone is saved. If everyone on earth rejects Jesus, they are not saved. The word might has nothing to do with Jesus' power. It has all to do with our choice. Do we choose to believe that Jesus died for us and rose for us and in doing so conquered sin and death? And then the next verse, whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Remember how this started with Nicodemus? He was saying that he knew something because he saw something. And now John, you see the Apostle John, he's being a little subtle here, right? He's like, I'm calling out Nicodemus for everything he did wrong in his approach to Jesus because Nicodemus came on the basis of simply knowing some things. But he didn't believe in Jesus. And so John drops the word believe three times to serve as a contrast that Nicodemus simply knew something but did not believe. And then verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. For whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John continues to poke at Nicodemus here. Because when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. And yet, What is it that Jesus proclaims about himself? I am the light of the world. So John's having a little bit of fun here at Nicodemus' expense when he's talking about the fact that Nicodemus chose nighttime to approach the sun, to approach the light of the world, right? It reminds me of like that silly joke about the scientists who wanted to make a name for themselves. And so they were like, we're gonna fly a mission to the sun, right? And they're like, how are you gonna do that? And they're like, our plan is to land at night. 
and it's not going to work because the sun is the sun. Whether it's nighttime or daytime, that is one hot boiling ball of gas that will consume anyone who gets near it. Likewise, it's ironic that Nicodemus chose the cover of night to approach the sun who is the light of the world. And so it's this reality of light and darkness that Jesus, the light of the world, he illuminates those things that are death within us. Illuminates the sin whose wages are death. And it leaves us with the choice. I can either continue in my sin or I can choose a victorious resurrected life in Jesus. I don't have to be a slave to sin. Jesus can transform me and make me a new creation, but I have to make a decision. Can I see the death in the ways of life without Jesus, turn around and choose Jesus that the light of the world might shine his holy light on me to expose all that is wrong within me and all that is dead within me that he might give me new life. Here's three things I want you to walk away with today. First, the scriptures point to Jesus. Read them and study them so that you can see how incredible and consistent the message of redeeming love is from beginning to end in the Bible. George, you can come on up. Jesus knows you entirely, and Jesus does not regret dying for you. And number three, don't be like Nicodemus. No one is good apart from Jesus. Don't stop at just knowing Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And now in closing, I want to do something that Jesus did in his encounter with Nicodemus because it's my favorite example of the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus looked back at Ezekiel and he looked back at the Israelites in the desert in the book of Numbers. But I want to look back a little further with you this morning. I want to take you back to a father and a child. A father and a child who take a three-day journey to the foot of a mountain. A mountain called Mount Moriah, where one day the temple of sacrifice will be built. Now this child, this child is described as the father's only begotten son. And at the foot of that mountain, the father gives his only begotten son wood to carry to the mountaintop. And the son takes this wood, this only begotten son takes this wood and puts it on his back. The only begotten son with wood on his back. And they ascend to the mountaintop. And at this mountaintop, an altar for sacrifice is built. The only begotten son, he asks his father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And in faith, the father responds, my son, God himself will provide. Here's the craziest part of this story. The only begotten son lays on the altar to be sacrificed. 
And as the father raises the knife to do what God had asked him to do, an angel cries out. And to keep the story short, they look and there is a ram with its head caught in a thorn bush. And that ram with its head caught in the thorn bush, it ultimately winds up being sacrificed. All the way back in Genesis 22, God was foretelling that a few mountaintops away from Mount Moriah, there would one day be an only begotten son who climbs to the top of Mount Calvary with the altar of a wooden cross on his back, wearing a crown of thorns where he would be sacrificed for my sins and for your sins. God has always wanted to redeem the relationship that Adam and Eve ruined. And he was saying it from the beginning. That's why Jesus is known as the second Adam. He reverses everything that the first Adam messed up. Jesus paid the price we could never pay that we might become the children of God because without that sacrifice, we are simply children of wrath. Listen, it's a hard truth, but it's a necessary one. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you are not a child of God. Only those who give their lives to Jesus, who repent of their sins and follow him, are children of God. But here's the good news. Everyone has the opportunity to choose Jesus. Jesus died and resurrected for you to have the choice to have eternal life with him. And as horrendous, torturous, and excruciating as the cross was, look at what Hebrews 12.2 tells us about how Jesus faced the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. As difficult as the cross was going to be, there was a joy on the other side that made it worth it. And that joy was that not only we would have the chance to choose Jesus, but if we choose Jesus, we're restored to right relationship with God the creator, who from the very beginning was telling a story of the only begotten son that would pay the price. That when Abraham said, son, my God himself will provide, he was not talking about a ram with its head caught in a thorn bush. He was talking about Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would provide the propitiation for our sins that we might be saved and delivered and restored to right relationship with Christ. Our God is mighty to save. And today, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know the opportunity is here to choose Jesus. You might feel stuck today. You might feel like you need help today. The good news is that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And what was true when John wrote it then is true now. Jesus knows what's in man. He knew what was in Nicodemus. He knew what was in the woman at the well. And he knows what's in you. And knowing fully what's in you, he still chose to die on that cross for you. We could just close our eyes for a moment. The question is really simple. Is there anyone here this morning that you've never chosen Jesus before, but today you heard 
of a God who sacrificed his only son, who lived, died, and rose again, that you might have the opportunity to choose Jesus. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, this morning, for the first time, I want to choose Jesus? If that's you, would you raise your hand? Is there anyone here that would like to choose Jesus this morning? Church, can we stand as we close in prayer this morning? Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for all that we can learn from Nicodemus, Lord God. And I pray as we leave here, Lord God, for anyone who knows you and yet doesn't believe in you, Lord God. God, would you help close that gap this morning? Would your Holy Spirit work and convict, edify and encourage? But we we end just by saying thank you. Thank you for the only begotten son. Thank you for providing. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Help us walk out of here with the joy of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray and believe. Amen.